Hello and welcome to Aerial Evolution. My guest today is San Francisco-based aerialist, coach, choreographer, producer, and director Veronica Blair. Veronica began her acrobatic career at 14. During her training, she learned from some of the most prominent artists in each discipline, including Chinese acrobatics under Master Liu Yi, trapeze from Ringling Brothers artist Lenorma Fox and Pamela Hernandez, who, side note, was the first African-American trapezist, and silks under the renowned godfather of the tissue, Gerard Fossili. Veronica began performing professionally at 17, making her one of the youngest African-American trapeze artists in the U.S. Shortly after her debut, she was personally selected by the founder of Universal Circus Cedric Walker as a trapeze artist and became a resident aerialist for five years. Throughout her career, Veronica has performed around the globe with Anna Gravity, Universal Studios Japan, and Warner Brothers Music. She performed in Germany's most successful circus show, Africa, Africa, and was the lead aerialist in Kamau's Buddha music video. In 2010, Veronica launched the Uncle Junior Project, an evolving documentary that shines a light on the too often overlooked and underappreciated careers of African-American circus performers, including Emmanuel Uncle Jr. Ruffin. In 2013, she worked alongside the African-American art and culture complex to stage Entrapment to Entertainment, a celebration of Blacks in American Circus, which was a three-month exhibition with over a 1,000 attendees. And in 2017, she was invited to speak at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival about her experience as the producer of the Uncle Junior Project and served as organizer and moderator on a panel highlighting the African-American circus experience. Most recently, Veronica produced and directed The Crown, a film featuring African-American female performers and is available to stream now. Hi, Veronica. It's so nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. As I said in the introduction, you began at 14, which is a lot earlier than some of my guests so far. So I'm curious, like, how did that come about? How did you get started? I joined a program called the Make a Circus Teen Apprentice Program. And I went there three times a week um, after school, and they taught partner acrobatics, basic tumbling juggling skills, clowning skills, just basic all around circus skills, stilting, things like that. And that's actually where I started. I spent my summers throughout high school performing with Make a Circus through the Teen Apprentice Program. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school that I actually started to dive into aerial work. How did you come to find this Make a Circus Program? Was it something that you sought out or did your family find it? So San Francisco has this long, amazing history of having circus in the parks, and it's always accessible and it's always free to everyone. So we have the San Francisco Mime Troupe, we have the Pickle Family Circus, Make a Circus, which was the company, the show that I grew up watching as a youngster in San Francisco and eventually becoming a teen apprentice. And now we, following in that tradition, we have Circus Bella. So it is just a San Francisco tradition. And again, I grew up like every summer, I would see Make a Circus in my local park during their summer tour. And I participated in their shows because their shows were very interactive. And it just was circus was a normal part of, of growing up in San Francisco. I did not know about the San Francisco School of Circus Arts, uh, which is now Circus Center San Francisco, until I audition for the Teen Apprentice program. And so it was there at the Now Circus Center where I spent a lot of my <laughs> after school hours during high school. And that is where I started to work with Master Lee. I was training with the San Francisco Youth Circus Troupe for about a year. Mm -hmm. And so you trained with Master Lee and then 
later with Gerard Fossili with Silks. I'm curious how that happened. And then also, while you were training with these masters, did they tell you anything about their careers and the history of the apparatus or the discipline? Uh, yes and no. So with Master Lee, I was I was young. I was 15 years old, 15, 16 years old. And for him, he comes from from circus uh, in China, a little bit like what circus is for them is, you know, training is bitter. You know, it mm. takes hours and hours and hours to perfect something. So you have to put in that time. And it's structured in a way where you, you know, you have to have your handstands, you have to have a certain level of flexibility, and you train really, really hard, and you learn the act, and you do the act. Um, you might do other things as well, but you train, and you do the act, and you do it well, you know, um, and so that's what training with Lu Yi was like. It was the first day of training was like, I had to sit in front of a Chinese pole and climb it as many times as I could, um, with the objective being to ultimately be able to climb 50 times in one session. Wow. And then handstand, straddle presses, pike presses over and over and over again, tumbling across the floor and hoop diving, like literally the basics. And it was very strict, no talking uh, it was not social hour. If you wanted to talk, you could leave the room. But it was in the Chinese tradition and like in the Russian tradition, it's circus and circus training is, is something that is is can be held in high regard. Like it's not it's not casual. It's not a thing about necessarily being an individual. It's more about a troop. It's more about representing your country and an excellence. And so that is what what I learned with Lu Yi is about that discipline. And it was about being serious about what you're doing, being deliberate about what you're doing um, in terms of training and also working on a team to achieve something great. Interesting. You know, so when you're doing a hoop diving act or you're doing a tumbling act, you're working with other people in your group. And so you have to perform at a level that fits with the group. Right. It was that. Years later, training with Gerard Fasoli was like, it's quite different. So we have, I'm in France um, and I'm at Canac at the National School. Well, I worked with him two times, one in Marseille in the south of France. And then um, the second time was um, at Canac. And this is, this is a completely different approach to circus. At this point, I am a professional, um, still wet behind the ears, but professional. Um, and I'm transitioning into doing silks or the tissue, performing on tissue. And Gerard was my first um, instructor. And so I remember him saying to me, do you want to be an athlete or do you want to be an artist? Because up until that point, I was performing more like an athlete, meaning that I was doing tricks and I was performing and I had the costume, but I was performing, but I wasn't taking my work personally, if that makes sense. Mm. I wasn't coming up with concepts and it was never really my goal up until that point to convey an emotion or to make sure that the audience was affected by what I was doing on stage. It was mainly just to entertain them. And I was performing because I was absolutely in love with circus and what I was doing. Um, so it was there in France where I really started to think about the kind of artist that I 
wanted to be and what it it was that I wanted to say on stage. So those are two completely different experiences there. Yeah, they sound like complete opposites, but also invaluable in that they can be combined to make a complete performance, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. I think that it's all positives. My favorite coaches that I worked with were Russian, where I kind of sought out, well, one found me, Valentina, she found me, but after that, I would, would seek out coaches, women that I admired and com- try to convince them to to train me. And so then there was this whole other way of training and way of, of being that I learned from, you know, training with Russian coaches as well. So it's, I, I would say that my career has been, in terms of the artist that I am today, has been shaped by so many different influences. I like to tell people I was raised by clowns because I was. <laughs> um, Sarah Moore, Joan Mencken, Paoli Lacey, Peggy Ford. These are all female clowns that really inspired me and encouraged me when I was in the Teen Apprentice program. Uh, Sarah Moore inspired me and encouraged me to do aerial work when I was 17, uh, which ultimately led me to Universal Circus, where like my first performance was performing in this magical scene with two amazing clowns chasing after me and getting like, I just love clowns so much and physical theater and physical acting and I've I've always, because that, again, clowns raise me, that's always try to inject a little bit of that into what I'm doing. So I have taken on a lot of different schools of thought over the years. Interesting. So I was going to ask you, and you sort of answered it, but I'm going to ask anyway, in case there's something you want to add to it, was is there a person or act or interaction that has had a profound impact on you as an artist? I think there's a couple of things here. One, one was coming up in circus at the time that I came up. Um, it was a different time, 1998, 1999. It was a nice time. It was like before YouTube, social media. And so a lot of the circus that I had access to was literally, I was learning it from my peers. It was being passed down onto me. It was free. Um, there was a lot of positive energy around it. There was no competition at the San Francisco School of Circus Arts. Mm. We would have people travel through from France or from Germany or from wherever, and they would teach workshops. And that is how we got information. And we understood that the circus community was international, but that it was something that information was always shared. It wasn't like people were sharing information to make money. So it was quite a different time. And creativity, originality, that quality of performance, especially here in America, was high. That's something that has really shaped my community experience, my community and my experience with circus. I'm really happy to have come up at that time before social media. Um, Like if you wanted to train, you'd have to ask the person who knows a person that knows a person. You give them a call and say, you know, hello, my name is X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to do this. Can you train me? Like it was, it was more like that and information was shared and it was accessible to everyone that had a desire to learn. So that had a big impact on my 
career. Um, the second thing that had a huge impact on my career was joining the Universal Circus at age 18. And um, perhaps I don't talk about this enough, but that was my circus school. It was a boot camp of sorts because during the off season, I would train. Every other year, I was performing a different act. So every time we had winter break, I was training and perfecting my act and getting ready for the following season. And these shows are that Cedric Walker, who is the owner, produced were so high energy. If you're performing in Universal Circus, you're performing between a street performer that he may have found in South Africa or in West Africa or East Africa that has just like got crazy stage presence, crazy skills. You know, street performers, they have this magical thing that they do where they're able to draw in people and not only draw them in, but keep their attention and like get money from them, you know? So right. <laughs> yeah, you have these really, really strong acts that he'd bring in from the streets. Um, and then you'd have world-class acts that he'd go to Monte Carlo and he'd pick these big group acts from China or from Russia and things like that. So you'd have these like Monte Carlo, like first, second place acts. and Sounds like a riot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that was set along, you know, the backdrop of concert style sound system and concert style lighting system because he came from the music industry. It was it's such a sensory experience. And so me coming into the mix, like as a novice, like just getting my chops I had to rise to the occasion. Like I couldn't just walk out in a center ring and be meek or be shy, and not give it 110% every time because the show was so hyped. Even the, the overture of the show had laser shooting across the tent and like amazing sounds. And like, so you couldn't come out after that and just be like, oh, I'm really shy. Or you just had to like, bring it. And doing that for five years really, really shaped my style of performance. It's really, really helped me to narrow down what it is that people are entertained by, what they like to see on stage, what translates well. Eye contact, gesturing to the audience, like not forgetting that the audience is there. That's a universal circus signature. You carry that audience with you. And that's not something that you would learn in a circus school or that you would learn just training in a studio. Yeah, that's huge. It's a, again, it was, it was a boot camp on, on performance. And like some of the things that I learned there, those are the things that I teach to my students. Since you are a teacher and you've learned from all of these different styles, what approach do you take? Mm, it's a combination of, of all of my experiences. It's a combination of that. And, and then the secret ingredient is tuning into the individual student. I've never worked in a circus school where I had to manage multiple students at a time. I've only taught recreational classes as well as I was a head coach for the San Francisco Youth Circus uh, for a few years. Um, and now I'm a director at uh, Celebrity Cruises. So I've never really been in a situation where I've had like 10 students who are trying to be professional circus artists like under my eye. 
But what I can say for some of the people that I have taught and some of my students that have either went on to go into the National Circus School in Montreal or become professional artists is that it's more about tuning into what that person is bringing that makes them special. What do they naturally have that is special? Um, and it's less about cultivating and molding and shaping them into what I think that they should be or have, because I think that X, Y, and Z makes a successful aerialist or artist. We need more voices. We need a variety of voices on stage. We need a variety of movements on stage. We need a variety of experiences and stories on stage. And so when I work with someone, yes, there is repetition. Training is a bit more serious with some humor in there. So once I see that that foundation is really strong, then I just push them to create. And that is a combination of two things. That is me transitioning from instructor to guide. And mm. that is a combination of of that and also them starting to develop what they want to do and say on stage. In that moment, I can really see what type of artist they're going to be. And then I can push them in the direction that they want to go in gently as a guide. So I hope <laughs> that makes sense. But it's mostly it's a it's a it's a combination of of everything. Yeah, for sure. And also knowing when to let them go. <laughs> I think a lot of instructors don't necessarily know everything. And I feel like sometimes one of the worst things that an instructor or a coach can do is hold on to a student for too long. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a instructor, it is my responsibility to like teach them what I know and give them the information that I have that will work for them in their situation. And then when I have nothing more to give, suggest that they go find another teacher or suggest that they go travel or, or suggest that they start submitting videos or suggest that they go out and work so that they can start getting new experiences. I feel like the worst thing that I could do is to just keep them under my thumb. Interesting. I appreciate that perspective. I think it is really valuable to learn from a variety of people. And I, you know, I've talked to other coaches as well who agree with that because you get different perspectives as you trained with different people and you find what works for you. Mm, definitely. I would like to say like in terms of training with different people. I think that that is necessary and I think that that's great, but it only really benefits you if you have a solid foundation in whatever it is that you're doing. So like if you want to be a hand balancer and you're training with amazing hand balancing coach and you have learned everything that you can learn from this coach, but this coach may not be able to teach you how to do a one arm. Mm -hmm. You don't like stay with the super great, you know, hand balancer coach. Once you have that foundation, you're good and you're ready for that next level. Then you seek out that next coach. I feel like, especially with, again, social media kind of being such a big influence on circus nowadays, people jump from instructor to instructor because maybe their videos look great on their feed or mm. because their students are posting about them. And that can be dangerous. Right. That's a little different. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also really important to research and know who you're training from. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous out there. <laughs> 
It, it is dangerous out there. And of course, there's something to learn from everyone. But if your goal is to go work in variety in Germany, then it would behoove you to to stay on the course that will get you to that goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> stay tuned for more of my interview with Veronica Blair after this short break. Along with your impressive aerial career, you also have done this amazing project called the Uncle Junior Project. And so for our listeners who are not familiar with it, can you first explain what it is? And then uh, I would love to know what inspired you to create it. Yes. So the Uncle Junior Project is a project that I created 10 years ago after the passing of a man named uh, Emmanuel Junior Ruffin. Now, Emmanuel's got the nickname Junior from Clyde Beatty, who was a world famous animal trainer. Um, I'm not sure if people are familiar with the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus. It's two conjoined circuses at this point in time, but back in the day, there used to just be Clyde Beatty Circus and Cole Brothers Circus. So Clyde Beatty had his own show under his name, and he was the star of the show. And he met uh, Emmanuel while the show was in Los Angeles in 1941. And Junior, well, this is before he was Junior, but Emmanuel would go to the circus every day. He would go and watch Clyde with the animals. And yes, he showed up so many times that Clyde was like, okay, do you want to do this? You know, like I can train you. I can teach you how to do this. And Emmanuel's like, Okay, so he asked his grandmother, he got her blessing, and so he ran off with the circus. And uh, Clyde Beatty taught him how to train lions, tigers, and uh, elephants. During that time, that's when he became junior, and ultimately he worked his way up to being a performer center ring, working under the name Prince Bogino. And um, he also took on other jobs in the circus, like becoming a welder, becoming a tent boss, journeyman. He worked on Ringling as a train boss, taking care of the train cars and things like that um, and working so many jobs. He was a one man circus, like he could run a circus. He could lay it out, set it up for you, weld everything, take care of the animals and present if he needed to. Wow. And unfortunately, he had so many skills that he got to taken advantage of, mm-hmm. which happens a lot in circus, let's be fair. <laughs> but, you know, he would have a position as a tent boss, a welder, and take care of the animals and probably get a salary that was for one of the jobs and not the three, you know. Um, so my interaction with Junior came when I joined Universal Circus and I was in training in Sarasota. And he rolled up in his wheelchair and he said, I heard that there was this young Black girl here training. And that is when we first met. I was 18 years old and um, he would come and he would hang out and he'd watch a little bit of my training and he would let me know that I was doing a good job. I didn't really pay him any mind. Uh, I just knew him as Manny. I was introduced to him as Manny at the time. Now, when I went on the road with Universal Circus, I worked with the King Charles Unicycle Troupe who called him Uncle Junior. And uh, they would say, you know, yo V, yo Veronica, like Uncle Junior's here. Go say hi to Uncle Junior. <laughs> I was like, who is Uncle Junior? And so I saw, oh, it's it's Manny. It's that old guy. And I would say hi to him and go about my business. I didn't learn anything about who this man actually was and or his extensive career in circus until after he passed away in 2010. Mm. And it was because 
because of my experience with him and my shock at, wow, I met this guy and I had no idea he he did all of these things in the circus and finding out that he was instrumental alongside Robert Houston, a historian, would help uh, Cedric Walker start the Universal Circus in 1993, 1994, helping him get the tent, helping them find all of the Black artists to build his show. I took it personally. I took it personally because as a teenager, Universal Circus was a show that I wanted to join. And it was a place where I could see myself performing and to know that I had interacted with this man for years at this point and had the opportunity to talk to him and know him and get to hear his story and didn't do that. I took it personally mm-hmm. and I began to worry about his legacy and how many people knew about him and how many people I thought should know about him and not just him, but other performers, my mentors and, and the people that I worked with. There is a Black circus community and there's not a lot of recorded history about Black people in American circus. And so I decided to do something about that. And that is how the Uncle Junior Project started. That's an incredible story. How has it been received? And I saw that there have been some exhibitions. Is it touring? Are there more plans? What's going on with that? So the project has been going for 10 years now. I guess this would be the the 11th year. Initially, uh, we started in Oakland, California. We had a studio, me and my partner at the time, Paul. And we started locally. We started with some Black performers that I knew locally that had been in the industry, in this business for, for decades. And then for the first five years, I traveled the country interviewing Black circus performers, collecting information, doing tons of research. During those five years, every year I did a pop music themed fundraiser Hmm. in order to raise funds for all of the filming that I was doing. That's when I started working on cruise ships as well to bring in some more income to support the project. And that is how I initially built up the Uncle Junior Project and built awareness around it was by holding circus events every year, generous donations from places like Kinetic Arts Center in Oakland, Circus Center San Francisco. I did a a fundraiser at Circus Warehouse, just traveling, going from circus space to circus space and dropping off flyers and, and spreading information. I think at that time, it was a little bit harder. In hindsight, it was a little bit harder to spread awareness about the Uncle Junior Project because people didn't really want to hear about it. Mm. There was a, an organization that had just popped up and they were doing this tour and they wanted people to do presentations on circus projects, whether it was their show or if they were writing a book or just circus projects. And so when they came to San Francisco, I submitted for the Uncle Junior Project and we had beautiful footage and I had these great archival photos and things like that. And the email that I received back from the founder of this organization was basically, we would like to have things that are more for everyone. Wow. To which I had to write back, look, your mission statement says that what you're trying to do is include everyone. You're trying to be inclusive. What you're saying is that this circus history is only for Black people. Mm -hmm. I'm not just recording this history for Black people. I'm recording this history for everyone, like what you're saying. Yeah. And to which I got a reply saying, oh, okay, well, all right. 
But I realized that I was getting responses like that, where people were hearing me and saying, oh, that's really cool. But it wasn't in their wheelhouse to support it or to send a newsletter about it or anything like that. That's so disheartening. It's typical. It's a, it was a typical response at, at that time. It didn't stop me. It didn't stop me at all for, for continuing. And so we continued. We kept editing and making videos. And in 2017, I was invited to the Smithsonian to talk on a panel about my experience uh, with the Uncle Junior Project and to talk about uh, the African-American circus experience. And so it was at that point, it was like, okay, well, they get it and they get it in a major way. And so that was one of the one of the big things that have happened throughout the 10 years of, of working on this project that is gave me like affirmation that that I am doing the right thing. Well, I'm, I'm lying. Like when I started it, I knew I was doing the right thing. But, you know, it's just like when people when other people look at what you're doing and they say this is important and we see value in it. How can we make space for you on our platform? How can we how can we facilitate this? Mm-hmm. And that was very validating. The Uncle Junior Project relaunched in 2020. So last year, I got a, a, an amazing partner, a new partner, Greg. And we have been talking since 2019 of how to restructure it, what that restructuring would look like, what would uh, the rebranding look like. We went through a complete, huge overhaul. And then we released it uh, last summer, which was <laughs> the craziest timing ever. But what that resulted in was that people were ready to listen Mm -hmm. and be active and support and ask, what can I do? Or Veronica, I have this platform. I would like to feature you on it, Um, which is really, you know, these things are, they're free. (laughs) They cost no money. (laughs) But the difference, the difference was unfortunately was George Floyd having to, you know, lose his life in front of a few cameras in order for people to kind of see that there's this narrative that is happening and that has been happening in this country for a long time and that there are people that need to be heard. Yeah. Things need to be looked at a little bit more closely. Yeah. Absolutely. This is not new and and that's part of your project. Like this is not new. (laughs) To show it. (laughs) It's not new. And that's I'm laughing uh, because it, it's not new. It's not new. Uh, we don't, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, we, we have to tell these stories of Black people in the circus because there aren't any. And they need to, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> no, you know, African-Americans have a long history in circus. This is an archiving project to make sure that those stories don't get lost mm-hmm. like so that they don't fall by the wayside so that people will get more energized and more encouraged about not only the history of black people in American circus but American circus the history of American circus we have uh, the circus world museum in Baraboo Wisconsin we need people to go down there and and help clean it up and to take care of our national circus treasures you know yeah i took it upon myself to document an archive and do this work specifically about African-American circus performers or performers of African descent, because I saw that there was a void there and I saw that there was a need to do that. I did not make the Uncle Junior project. I did not create it 
to say, you can't participate in it. You can't celebrate this history. You can't relate to this information because you aren't Black. Right. That is a narrative that has magically <laughs> come in from somewhere. Mm hmm and it's just not it's just not based on reality. This is not only black history, this is American history, this is circus history. Um and I I would encourage everyone to get involved. Absolutely. I and I am thankful that you're doing this and I learned a lot by going to your website and would encourage everyone to do it. I will include it in the show notes and people can donate on it and also check out all of your informational videos and your merch, which is awesome. Thanks. Yeah. We didn't even talk about The Crown. <laughs> the new film that you released, you directed and produced. Yes. So what did you find to be the most challenging aspects of doing that, especially during a pandemic? The most challenging part of doing The Crown is probably taking five videos that were performed at different times and different spaces and with different themes and putting them together in a way that made sense visually so that the cinematic components would make sense in terms of storytelling. So you have The Crown, which is essentially a virtual showcase, right? And it gets elevated because of what we call the bridges that are between each performance, which is played by myself. This main character is having this whole experience internally or externally. It depends on how the, the viewer wants to see it or how they interpret it. But this main character is, is having this experience and she encounters these archetypes that further her along or help her in her process of self-discovery um, and ultimately the realization of who she is, which is a higher being. And so how do you do that with pre-recorded <laughs> performances is <laughs> right. really the question. And I, and I think that that was the hardest part. Once the performances were in an order that made sense to me and my partner, Orlando. The next thing was, what are we filming when we go to the studio? Mm. And we got to the point, because we started, we originally started off with four performances. And we got to this point where we were like, gosh, this story isn't finished. And we we filmed this other stuff thinking that we were going to include it. But now it doesn't make sense to include it. But it also doesn't feel like the story is is done. And so I got on the line and, and I called Shanae Stiletto and I said, do you have a performance I can use? <laughs> like, I'm taking a shot in the dark here. I, I don't know what kind of videos you have. Like, again, all of these videos or performances were shot at different times, you know, years apart from each other. Do you have anything that I can take a look at? And she had just happened to record a performance that she did two weeks before I called her and she was just getting the videos back. And I was like, yes. Perfect. <laughs> um, and it was perfect because she exudes this confidence and she has this, she has this era about herself where you feel like she's in total control and she's confident. And that is exactly what was needed for the end of the story. So that definitely all worked out. Yeah. I think in order for circus to evolve, we need to start to look at film in a different light 
We need to not just set the camera down and stand in front of it and record. We need to get creative and we need to talk to our friends in the film community and the animation community. I just I think that a whole new form of storytelling could emerge if we get more creative with circus and filmmaking. And I know it's been done before, but The Crown with its small budget and its pre-recorded performances really opened my eyes to what is possible with just a little bit of innovation. But yeah. I'm personally excited to see what people start creating out of this pandemic because it has forced a lot of creativity. Yeah, definitely. I I've done some <laughs> some interesting things. I, I started working on a fence at one of my favorite parks in San Francisco and I created I don't know if you would call it aerial, but I <laughs> I don't know what you would call it, but it's I, I used the fence as a means to artistic expression and was able to create some work with that. And interesting. Yeah, I've done some things during the pandemic that I probably would have never ever done or imagined myself doing without the pandemic. So I think that there is if we use this time wisely, we'll be able to innovate and invent new things and ideas. And I think that our industry would be greater for it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Aerial Evolution. It was a pleasure having Veronica on the show, and I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, come and find Aerial Evolution on the website, Instagram, or Facebook. All are at Aerial Evolution Pod. And as always, these links will be in the show notes. Stay tuned for future episodes with other amazing aerialists releasing every two weeks. Next time, I will be speaking with Susan Murphy. You won't want to miss it.